If you're a cannabis business owner looking to expand into new markets and need guidance and support you can trust, consider Collateral Base, a group that has done it before in multiple merit-based and limited market states. Collateral Base was founded by an experienced cannabis attorney with highly educated consultants with master's degrees and years of experience in the cannabis industry. The Collateral Base team is confident they know cannabis licensing better than any of their peers. And I encourage you to see for yourself. It just takes one phone call. If you're ready to expand your cannabis business into new limited markets, contact Collateral Base today at 309-306-1095. That's 309-306-1095. Or visit collateralbase.com. Hey, music lovers. The Cannamom Show podcast, in collaboration with Lambkin Guitars, is giving away a custom-built, one-of-a-kind electric guitar built by Josh Lampkin. The solid one-piece hemp wood body includes a built-in glass bowl piece. Yeah, you heard me right. You can take a hit and then play a lick. Now's your chance to help the Cannamom Show crush cannabis stigma with your entry. Register for the Hemp Guitar Giveaway online at LampkinGuitars.com. That's L-A-M-K-I-N Guitars.com. The drawing will be part of a 420 celebration at the Goods Dispensary in Somerville, Massachusetts, where the guitar is on display for the month of April. But don't worry, you don't have to live in Mass or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N guitars.com. Welcome. You're listening to Casually Baked, the podcast. Home base for the can of curious. Thanks for tuning in. It's hot time. We had a hot time. Together. Together. Yes, it's a hot time. We had a hot time. Hi, y'all. I'm Joe your host and Cannabis Lifestyle Guide. And today's podcast is an important wake-up call. Have you ever wondered what goes on inside the American healthcare system and why it feels like you're falling through the cracks instead of being cared for most of the time? The complexities in healthcare are designed that way to keep average Joes like you and me from being knowledgeable. Well, today... We're getting the inside scoop from a medical professional with decades of experience in all aspects of the American healthcare system, from going to the hospital, to handling insurance companies, to finding lower cost alternatives for medications, to discovering new models of patient-centric care, and talking to your doctor about cannabis. David Wilcox is a doctorate-prepared nurse who also holds a master's in health administration and is board certified in nursing informatics. Dr. Wilcox has 28 years of healthcare experience in which he worked as a bedside nurse, hospital administrator, and in healthcare information technology, which has helped him to develop his unique perspective on the American healthcare system. 
Today, we're chatting about his recently published book, How to Avoid Being a Victim of the American Healthcare System, A Patient's Handbook for Survival. But first, a word from our sponsor, MJ Relief, the muscle rub PhD formulated for what aches and pains you. And this week, we'll hear Cynthia's story of relief. Hi, I'm Cynthia from Boulder, Colorado. Uh, I've always been an avid athlete, amateur athlete, worked out or trained four to six times a week my whole life. I'm 60 years old, was having a lot of pain in my flexors, thinking there was something really wrong. I went to uh, an orthopedic surgeon, and indeed there is nothing wrong. <laughs> my flexors are, and, and ligaments are, are just worn out from being 60 and being and using them. They just wear out. We don't last forever, unfortunately. So uh, looking for relief, I found this MJ Relief skin ointment, CBD skin ointment, and I just apply it in the morning and it seems to loosen my flexors up, which allows me to use them, which in turn warms them up more. So if I just keep applying this two, three times a day, I'll walk a lot better. It's great. I'd try it. If you're feeling Cynthia's chronic pain and want some muscle and joint relief of your own, head over to mjskinrelief.com and order a tube for you and another one for someone you love. That's mjskinrelief.com. And if you're already a fan of MJ Relief, please send a video or voice memo like Cynthia and let me share your story of relief on the podcast. And tag at MJ Skin Relief if you're a social butterfly. The Sustainability Roll-Up is presented by OCB Rolling Papers. In perfect harmony with natural sustainable practices, it's always been the OCB signature to provide the highest quality, responsibly sourced, and sustainably crafted rolling papers. This week, we're celebrating female farmers. It wasn't until the 1978 Census of Agriculture that the USDA even began to track the gender of our farmers. Today, women make up more than half the U.S. population and own an increasing number of farms. Surveys show that women own or co-own nearly half of the farmland in the Midwest. Yet, women are underrepresented on the boards of policymaking bodies and often encounter communication barriers and mansplaining when accessing information from agencies and institutions. During my hunt for information, I discovered the Women, Food, and Ag Network. WFAN exists so that women can provide each other the information connections, and encouragement they need to be effective practitioners and supporters of sustainable agriculture and healthy localized food systems. WFAN members come from across all over the U.S. and several other countries, ranging in age from teens to women in their 80s. WFAN represents farmers, urban gardeners, environmental educators, community activists, academics, and others who care about food and our environment, like me. One of WFAN's programs that drew my attention is Plate to Politics, a nationwide effort to support and strengthen the national leadership role of women transforming our nation's food system. 
We're talking from federal agriculture policy agenda to what's on our family's dinner plate. The program focuses on providing leadership training to women engaged in healthy food and farming. If you know a female farmer who's either looking for support or who'd be an excellent voice for the community, I'll share links to both WFAN and the Plate to Politics program in the podcast 205 show notes at casuallybaked.com. And if you're looking for a rolling paper worthy of canoodling your favorite sun-grown flower, look no further than OCB. All OCB papers are plant to puff and made in a facility that's powered by 100% green energy. OCB offers a full line of papers made with sustainable fibers, including flax, wood, organic hemp, bamboo, and virgin wood. All come in a full line of sizes in both booklets and cones. And you'll find no GMOs, no chlorine, and no dyes in OCB papers. Of course, you must be 21 and older to buy OCB rolling papers and to follow the natural wonders of OCB on social at OCB underscore USA. And for you grown-up joint rolling novices, I invite you to learn the craft alongside me. Catch the Roll With Me video series live streaming on the Casually Baked YouTube channel with replays on the WeedTube and IGTV. If you haven't bought your rolling supplies yet, visit ocbusa.com backslash baked to get four booklets of OCB and a rolling tray for only $4.99. This bundle is worth 20 bucks and is around for a limited time, but the rolling skills and street cred we'll earn together, my friend, makes this bundle priceless. As for you OGs who can roll a joint blindfolded, I challenge you to sample the entire line of OCB products and let me know your favorite. Ask for OCB wherever you buy your papers. You'll find links to the OCB special offer and roll with me in the podcast show notes at casuallybaked.com. Did you know that medical errors are the third leading cause of death in the United States? As Dr. Wilcox explains, the dangerous thing about the American healthcare system is people don't get educated on it until they're actively in it, and then it's too late. You've got to know what you're doing before you get in there. So microdose what you've got because I want you to pay attention and settle in for this empowering discussion on being an active partner in your health care. It's time to get casually baked. I got the bottle of wine, the high dollar kind. I got the West Coast smoke. But just We're going to be talking about saving your own life. Basically. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy that you had to compile this book, but thank you for compiling the information in this book. You're welcome. I thought it was something that that the average American needs to know. I mean, there's so much underlying layers in the American healthcare system. You know, it's very complex and it was designed that way. It's not an accident that the healthcare system is so complex. There are certain people within the healthcare system that don't want you to know what's really going on. I, I remember telling my wife I wanted to write this book, and she said, that's genius. I, I haven't seen anything out there like that. And she was very supportive, even though I spent long weekends in my office 
hammering it out. <laughs> That's right. The creative process is very lonely and isolating, but thank you for taking the time to do this. So I thought we could do a couple of things. Now, you know, this is a podcast, so I care about cannabis, but you know, anybody that consumes cannabis also needs to take care of their overall health and wellness. So I thought we could follow along the way you wrote the book and just start with some basics, how to be safe, how to be your own advocate, those sorts of things. And then we could talk about some of the insights that you found about medical cannabis and us talking to our doctors, sharing information, how we're treated by insurance companies, that sort of thing. Does that sound good to you? Sure, definitely. All right. So one of the big themes that I found in this book is, you know, being your own advocate not being somebody who just listens to what the person in the white coat tells them and doing it. And, you know, from your own personal life and through your work life, you have so many examples laid out in this book where it's so important to use your voice, ask questions, and, you know, push your doctors and nurses on things. So, um, so let's start there. What are some of those basic key things that you believe we need to do to, you know, be involved in our own healthcare and have the best possible outcome. Well, the one thing, and you and you nailed that, was that you do need to be involved in your own healthcare. It's not enough to be able to say, "I'm going to go to the hospital. I'll be safe." Um, medical errors is the third leading cause of death, tied with COVID last year. But normally, it's the third leading cause of death. A lot of them center around medications, so it's very important that you know your medications. Um, I gave some advice in the book that you should print out several medication lists. Don't think that your clinicians are talking to each other. You want to be able to give them a list of your medications. You give it to the nurse when you come in. When you see the doctor, you give them the list. If you're going for surgery, when you see, see the anesthesiologist, you give them the list because medical errors and especially in electronic medical records that are very frequent so you want to make sure you're in charge of your information and that you're a member of your healthcare team yeah and just like you know people say be sure and have a picture of all of your credit cards that are in your wallet in case your yeah. wallet gets stolen you know the other thing you say is to make this list and then take a picture of it so you have a digital copy of it everywhere you go yes that's correct you can show it to everybody, and, and if you can print it out, even better, because you can hand them the document. They can check your meds in the EMR, especially when you come out of surgery. Not a lot of people know that when you come out of surgery, your surgeon does not want to write for your regular daily meds. He wants either your doctor to do it or if there's a hospitalist on. So that gets a little bit dicey. So when you're, if you have somebody with you when you come out of surgery, make sure they're getting a list of your current home medications because that's a very big gap and a very big disconnect. And speaking of surgery, another thing that I read that I thought was really interesting is shopping before you do surgery, shopping hospitals, shopping doctors, you know, finding <clears throat> out, is this something that I could do outpatient? Because what you wrote in the book, we are charged by the minute for our recovery time. Yes, you are. <laughs> yes. So shopping around, especially if you have a high deductible plan, will do wonders for your budget. So you could get a total knee surgery done, say, for $11,000 in a hospital. But when you move to an ambulatory surgical center, which is just as safe, and you usually go home the same day, it might cost you $8,000. 
Um, so shopping around for your health care is important. Having that discussion with your surgeon, hey, do you do this in an ambulatory surgery center? Now, there are some, some complexities. If you have a lot of comorbidities or things like maybe congestive heart failure or diabetes or you're obese, then it's probably better for you to go to a hospital because they have the, the means there to deal with the situations if, you know, if it's going to take you a while to recover. But if you're healthy and you've been taking care of your health, which I hope you all are, then you could go to an ambulatory surgical center and get that procedure done. Now, another thing that you talk about is because hospitals are constantly understaffed, like there's always a need for more nurses. There are always people doing way more jobs, wearing way more hats. One of the things that you wrote in here was if a nurse or somebody's rushed, say, hey, come back later if you don't have time for this right now. I love right. that. It's like, listen, <laughs> don't be rushing me right now, people. I'm in the hospital. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of that is around medications. So I give you a prescribed method in the book for medications. Always ask what the name of the medication is. If you don't understand the name of it or it's not something you normally take, ask why you've been prescribed it. Ask questions until you feel comfortable taking medications because, like I said before, that's where a lot of errors happen. You want to definitely question the medication piece of it. So if somebody comes in your room and they're in a hurry and they, and they say, just take the pills, uh-uh. Just touch them on the arm softly and say, it's okay, it's okay to come back later. I know you're very busy. And, um, and when they have time, they can answer your questions or send in a charge nurse maybe who, who isn't taking care of patients to answer your questions. Yes, and the other thing about medications was you saying, you know, a, one medication might have three different names. Right. Yep, like Tylenol. <laughs> Tylenol and generic and brand and an IV has three different names. And I loved the tip that if it is a brand name, it's in the capital letters. And yep. if it is a generic, it is not capitalized. Right, it's lowercase. Clever way to understand what you're working with. Definitely. So, what are some of those other things? If we're wrapping up, just some quick tips for being in the hospital, being in a doctor's office um, that you want to share before we kind of make our way over to insurance and some of these other, what did you call them to me, um, parasitic entities that we're dealing with? Right, exactly. So, um, one of the other things that we should probably talk about is if you know if you're going to have surgery especially at a teaching hospital you want to ask your surgeon if they're actually the person doing the surgery because many times an intern or a resident will be the person to do the surgery do you really want to be cut on by somebody who's just learning or do you want to be cut on by somebody who's professional because it doesn't change what you're going to pay for that surgery it just changes the nature of who's going to perform the surgery. Lots of times the surgeon will come in at, at about close and just inspect everything and still get paid for it. So you want your surgeon to do your surgery. You don't want to be practiced on, right? So those are, those are some of the things that you're going to want to ask and some of the ways you can keep yourself safe in the hospital. The other thing, and this is a very important point, is go on the CMS, Centers for Medical care and Medicaid services website and look up your hospital to see the star ratings. Look up your doctor, your surgeon to see the star ratings. You don't want to get somebody with bad hands and bad judgment and they're out there. Um, you know, it, it happens and there's plenty of stories in the book, unfortunate stories that 
happened to people that trusted their surgeons. Uh, so I can remember one time I was in a grocery store and we had a certain doctor that had really bad outcomes. And I'm walking down an aisle and I hear these two ladies, they're talking to each other. And one lady says to the other lady, yeah, I'm getting such and such a procedure done over at the hospital by this doctor. And I was like, oh, Lord. And so um, I, I kept shopping. But inside I was like, boy, I should say something. But how can I say something? I work at the hospital, right? You know, I'm bantering with that kind of stuff. So I'm walking down the frozen food aisle and she's coming right at me. And I'm like, hey, um, I heard, overheard you say you were going to get a procedure done by such and such a doctor. And she said, yes, I am. I'm, I'm going to have it done Monday. And I said, I work at the hospital. I can't tell you who I am, but I really think you should look into changing your doctor because this guy just had bad outcomes on patients. And so when I saw her in the hospital, she was not under that doctor's care. She was under another doctor's care. It's little things like that, that, you know, that a doctor prepared nurse wants to give to people. And how do you do that large scale? I mean, that was a random chance, right, in a grocery store. But how do you do that large scale? You've got to get that information into people's hands. And that's why I wrote this book. Pause. Hi, it's just me and you right now. I wanted to hit pause for a minute to talk about hybrid healthcare in action. We've discussed it on a couple of episodes, and it's a relevant part of today's discussion with Dr. Wilcox. As your cannabis lifestyle guide, I thought I'd give you a glimpse of how I'm applying it in my own life. When considering whole wellness, it's about what we put in our bodies, how we sleep, how we care for our mental and physical health, where we source our medicine, and how much room we make to play and enjoy life. And it's hard to have fun when you feel like shit. For the past two months, I've been overstressed, overworked, and overwhelmed with this move I've told you about. My adrenals are shot, my neck, shoulders, and upper back are plotting against me, and I'm working in a studio while building it out. So on top of everything else, I feel scattered. I'm getting it mostly done, but things are falling through the cracks. And I am spread paper thin. <sighs> I don't know about you, but I need relief. So I raised my hand and I asked for help. Cue the universe, birds singing, sun shining, and my introduction through a friend to Dr. Love CBD, a brand taking a better approach to CBD. Dr. Love CBD offers a variety of doctor-designed CBD formulations. CBD beauty products, and even complete monthly wellness programs. All of their products are made in America with the highest quality ingredients and sold at fair prices so more people can have access. So who is this Dr. Love? Yes, she's a real person, and that is her name. Dr. Richa Love is a cannabis and CBD skeptic turned influential voice in the cannabis and CBD space. I was originally introduced to Dr. Love's work in 2019 on a trip to Canada when I was exploring the Calgary cannabis culture. You'll meet Dr. Love on an upcoming podcast. Over the next several weeks, I'll share highlights of Dr. Love CBD's relief program with you. I'll share how I'm using it and how it's supporting my commitment to natural whole body wellness. In the meantime, you can learn more about Dr. Love CBD products and programs at drlovecbd.com.
If you like what you see, use promo code BAKED to receive a huge 20% discount on programs and products. I'll also include a direct link in the podcast 205 show notes at casuallybaked.com. I'll keep walking the walk and sharing the love, and I really hope you'll join me. All right, let's get back in there and continue our discussion on surviving the U.S. healthcare system. Yeah, and the power of the customer experience, you know, that rating system that you were talking about, the hospital's need and want that good rating. So it's so important to use your voice and speak up. And if you have a bad experience with a doctor, with a hospital, with a clinic to say something, I mean, because you're paying that forward to the next patient. Right. So in their fees, they send out surveys to you. What you guys don't know about the surveys is that the hospital gets paid on what the survey says. So if you think of their five-star and all that, that no problem. But if they come back with a bad survey, then that affects their reimbursement. So this has driven hospitals to go after the patient experience. Um, they have patient experience officers now. It's a new position within the last five years or so that just look out to see what the problems are and how do we enhance the experience. So your voice is being heard. If you get a survey and somebody knocked it out of the park, mention that person. Because, you know, when you have a star performer in healthcare, you want to make sure other people know that they're a star performer. And if you have a bad experience, the hospital, the doctor, they won't learn unless you mention that experience and say, hey, you know, you guys really dropped the ball here. So I went to uh, the emergency department for an abscess in my chest. And an abscess in your chest can develop into a blood infection. So by the time I got to the emergency department, and I don't like to go to emergency departments unless I'm working at them, I had a chills and a fever, and I knew I was starting to develop a blood infection, which they call sepsis. As I was there, they were triaging all kinds of really big emergencies, heart attacks, strokes, and things like that. So I was like a minor player. I had to wait my turn. When the triage nurse saw me, she said, oh, yeah, we're going to draw blood cultures on you and gave me a couple of Tylenol. Big no-no. Don't give me something that's going to reduce my fever before you draw my blood culture. You know, I knew that. And then they said they would give me an antibiotic to get started and send me back to the waiting room. Well, that antibiotic never came. Uh, the pharmacy tech came back and said, hey, it's not stocked in the machine. We're going to get it. And we're going to bring it out to you in the waiting room. I went out there six hours later. I'm back in the same shape that I was in after I took the Tylenol. And I knew what was going on. You know, so I, I pestered them to give me that antibiotic, and they finally did. So, and then they didn't chart it in the electronic medical record. Went back to see the doctor, and the doctor ordered another antibiotic, and I knew not to take it, being a doctor-prepared nurse. And so I said, no, you already gave me this. And, and the nurse said, I, I can't find it. And I said, well, she didn't chart it, but you gave it to me, so I'm not going to take it again. And they were going to give me pain medication because they had to slice me a little bit. And uh, they never gave me the prescription, so I knew enough to ask for that. But it, for the average person, they probably would have taken that other pill, and they probably would have left without the pain prescription. Yeah, which, of course, when you are in an emergency room situation, another tip that you had was do not be there alone. Don't oh, no. spend yeah. time in the hospital without having an advocate there with you. Some family members, friends, somebody that's there to pay attention when you aren't necessarily feeling good and you can't. Right. I strongly advise that if you don't have a nurse in your network of, network of friends and family, that you find somebody 
So ask your friends, ask your family, hey, do you know a nurse? Take them out to lunch, you know, connect with them on social media because nurses really want to help people understand the American healthcare system and get them through it safely. So I strongly recommend it. So the reason why I thought I was the person to write this book was because as a doctor, the doctor comes in and he diagnoses you and then he turns you over to the nurse, right? Give you medications, make sure your procedures get done. But the nurse goes into really intricate spots in your life, those places that, you know, they're reserved for family, you're not feeling good. My wife was a hospice nurse for a number of years and she would go into the deepest places with her patients. And when the patients were getting ready to go in the family, she was the one preparing them. And um, she had some amazing experiences, but she went deep in. And so having a nurse guide you through the American healthcare system is the optimal way for you to learn it because we know, and we've seen firsthand how people suffer in it. And People are, you know, people that are scared when they get admitted to the hospital, um, people that that hit me up constantly to say, hey, you know, doctor put me on this medication, but I feel like this and say, well, go back to the doctor and tell him that might not be the right medication for you. you just being that active part and having a trusted advisor or somebody that you can go to, I said, it's really important. You know, one of the things that make it so important is the fact that insurance is such a labyrinth. And, mm. you know, one of the things that I was reading in this book is that doctor may have made a decision about giving you a different medication, but it got overridden by the insurance. So is this a good time to kind of step into that landmine? Sure. So there is a position called a pharmacy benefit manager. You've probably never heard of that position and it's by design. Originally, when they started that position, they were really looking out to get you lower cost drugs, but then they all got bought up by the pharmacies and they work together with the insurance companies. And so they're incentivized through coupons and rebates and many of which they keep to themselves to get you the drug that benefits them the most. So if your doctor writes for you to get, let's say, low pressure for your blood pressure, and he writes, you can fill a, a generic prescription. The pharmacy benefit manager has a coupon for a brand name drug. He's going to use that to benefit his group, and you're going to pay more out of pocket for that drug. I can tell you, I knew uh, an oncologist who prescribed chemo for a stage four cancer patient, and the pharmacy benefit manager through the insurance company came back and said to the doctor, no, you can't use that chemo. You're going to have to try this one first. And the doctor's like, what? What do you mean? I'm the one who makes the medical decision. So here are these pharmacy benefit managers, many of them without any medical training, making that decision based on price as opposed to what's best for the patient and what this attending physician or this oncologist saw would work well because he's doing the research, right? Because he wants to save people at stage four, but instead he had to try this lower cost drug. And when he pushed to say, I want to talk to the person who made the decision, they said, that's not possible. So these guys sit in the shadows of healthcare and they look out for both the pharmacy companies and the insurance companies to ensure that they continue making their 20 to 25% profit a quarter. Yes, profits, not patients is what their focus right. is. Yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous. And there are people every day that, you know, stop taking 
their insulin or rationing their insulin because they can't afford it or not taking their blood pressure medication in a regimented format. Those things are lethal for patients, but they're having to do that because they either can't afford their medicine or they're not getting, you know, the full story from their doctor. It's not whole patient wellness that we're working with here. Right, exactly. So that's an excellent point because there are hundreds of thousands of prescriptions left at the pharmacy counter every year because people have to make the decision between whether they're going to pay their rent and eat or buy pharmaceutical drugs. So here's a good example. I had an English setter. She was about 16 years old and she was having some heart failure issues. So the vet prescribed Viagra because before Viagra is actually an an anti-pulmonary hypertensive, but you know, once they found out what the side effect was up went the price, right? Because that's the pharmaceutical industry. So she went to fill a one month supply and it was over $700 at one pharmacy. And you know, we love our dog, but that's a lot of money to pay for a one month supply of Viagra. So she got onto an app called GoodRx and she searched it out and GoodRx doesn't, doesn't take your insurance or anything like that. What it does is it works to find you the best price using coupons and things that the pharmacy benefit manager gives them. And we were able to get it for $63 for the month. My point is, if you can sell it at $63 a month and still make a profit because the pharmaceutical industry is definitely making profits, why are you charging $700 a month? I mean, what, what's the difference? That was just a few blocks across town, you know, that it was $700. And if you don't know this stuff, if you're not equipped, um, you're, you know, you're going to get sucked into that vacuum. And there's been some work done with some electronic medical records also in which now the doctor who's prescribing in the, in the emergency department can actually see the price of the drug. That's, that's fresh, that's new, and that's helping, but it's, it's not enough. I mean, we have to be educated in where do we go, what do we do, and, you know, how do we take care of ourselves as opposed to, you know, just running the gamut of the system, which is trying to make money off our health care. Now, is that because of the price transparency law that came out? No, actually, it's not. Um, There were a couple of companies that came together that thought that it was time to do it. It was the right thing to do. Um, But the price transparency law that was actually an executive order by the Trump administration that, that took hold in January of 2021, so it's pretty new, charges hospitals. Hospitals are supposed to put their charges on their website. So there's an example in the book where I went to my local hospital that treated me with a two-star rating, and uh, I pulled up what it would cost for a total knee surgery without insurance. And there were so many medical codes in there. And I mean, you know, I hold a doctorate degree. I'm a nurse, but I would have needed a code or somebody to tell me what that cost because they did not just say, okay, if you come here, it's going to cost you eight grand, right? It was just like, you're going to pay 440 for the suture. You're going to pay a certain amount for the gauze. You're going to pay 500 bucks for this. It's, it was crazy. So what they're trying to do. problem and make you figure out what the, what the final yeah. cost is going to be. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Right. So they get fined $300 a day, which is basically $110,000 a year. And they're willing to eat that because if, if you know what the prices are and you, you might not get your surgery there, you might go somewhere else. Right. So they're, you're just keeping it under wraps. And until we actually begin to enforce that executive order, which they're talking about, um, we're not going to see any changes. In fact, there's, there's certain medical groups 
actually stating that it should be $300 per bed per day, because that's going to get their attention. So, you know, stay tuned on that one. Well, so the way it's written, hospitals are required to list the cost of procedures on their website in a consumer-friendly format. Right. So I did see one example in the book of it just looks like a lot of mumbo-jumbo and you're really having to look through, like you are reading code. So as consumers, can we be the one that sounds the alarm that's like, hey, this hospital is not doing that? Like, who would we go to for something like that? That's that's great. So let's talk a little bit about what you can do. Now you can you can write your legislative leaders. You can your local people. Okay. So I, I would write. I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina. I would write my local representative on both sides of the fence and say, Hey, you know they're not complying with this order. But there's no teeth in it right now. Nobody's actually holding them accountable or to the fire. You know, putting their feet to the fire. And so that brings that brings up a different problem, right? So why is that kind of stuff occurring? Well, you see, uh, let's go back to pharmaceutical. They spent $43 million in election campaigns in the year 2020 across both sides, Republican and Democrat. They also spent over the last 10 years, $6 billion lobbying people in Washington to drive their agenda and take care of take care of their needs. So if you need something like an EpiPen, an epinephrine pen is something that you use when you're in a severe anaphylactic shock and you need to come out of it. So instead of waiting for the ambulance where your throat is swelling up tight and you're having difficulty breathing, you can administer an epinephrine pen to yourself by injecting it into your thigh. So that between the year 2006 and 2016 went up 574%. So it was $90 in 2006 for a two-pack, and in 2020, it's $670 if you don't have insurance for a two-pack. Well, it sells for $67 over in the UK. So Yeah, and I have a friend who's a single mom, and her daughter has a severe peanut allergy, and they have to have those, and it's like, yeah, am I going to buy groceries or restock the EpiPen? And, you know, that's you don't have a choice. Yeah. Well, you do have a choice, unfortunately, and that's why some people just don't get the medication that they need. Um, So one of the things that I read in here, because, you know, we're asking and they're used, like you said, there's no teeth in this law yet about hospitals being transparent with the pricing and stuff. You mentioned healthcarebluebook.com, kind of like what we have for our cars with Kelly Blue Book. Exactly. Talk a little bit about that site and how we can use it. Yeah. So you can look up your procedures on there and what they'll give you is a ballpark figure of what it should cost in your area. And so uh, another thing that you can do, since like I live in Charlotte and it's, you know, it's going to be a little bit more expensive than if I drove an hour to Greensboro. So I would look for both cities and I would compare the procedure costs and then I would pick what I was going to do. And I would also look, like I said, again, at the CMS ratings for the hospital, the doctor, the anesthesiologist, because he's the guy who keeps you alive during surgery. Not a lot of people know that, but while everybody else is working on you, he's the guy who's watching vital signs, administering the anesthesia, and he's responsible with keeping you alive. So do your research. If you do your research, you'll be okay. Um, It's people that don't do their research, like that lady in the grocery store, that just walk into the situation blindly. They meet, you know, they're talking to a doctor who has got a really good personality, but just really bad outcomes. And that's the spot you don't want to be in. 
Yeah, absolutely. So what you're talking about is healthcare consumerism and, you know, us being actively involved and, you know, looking and checking all the boxes, making sure we're doing all the things and involving ourselves, our family, our, you know, our doctor having this like open dialogue. And so I guess moving to that next phase of what you talk about in this book and like, how do we fix this? What's the solution? There's so much data that's been gathered and, you know, you having the experience with that. Um, there are these social determinants that lead us to the level of health that we have. And so if we're able to make these choices and we have all of this data and we actually use it and empower hospitals to create more of a whole wellness approach, um, what might that look like? I mean, because I know there are some small examples of this kind of starting to happen where we are moving from a fee-for-services model to what you call a value-based care system. So mm-hmm. how do we actively participate in getting there? Yes, that's a great, great question. So in fee-for-service, your doctor, your hospital, they're incentivized. They make money when you walk in the door. They're incentivized to write tests. They're incentivized to do labs. They're incentivized to keep it churning because they're making money on you. Um, when you get into a value-based care structure, they're incentivized by quality outcomes. Quality outcomes are indicators that state that they're keeping their congestive heart failure patients out of the hospital and thereby reducing the cost of healthcare by proactively managing them, maybe at home with a a wireless scale that feeds up into the cloud as well as a blood pressure cuff that feeds up into the cloud, a pulse oximeter to check your oxygen levels so that there is a nurse navigator at the other end of that who's looking at that at that data and saying, oh boy, uh, Mr. Wilcox has to get into the hospital because he's going into a CHF event. Normally the course is you're out there in the wild, right? And you just try to manage it yourself. And then all of a sudden you're like, I can't breathe. And before you know it, you're in the hospital costing them money. Well, under value-based care, they don't want that to happen because they actually have to pay for your health care. It's, it's a team approach. It is the answer. Um, and we're starting to see it. But speaking to your social determinants of health, as these insurance companies start to take on huge Medicaid populations, we're starting to see them pay attention to it. And that's, like I said before, they're trying to make money, they're trying to please their shareholders. So they're finding creative ways. One insurance company took over the Medicaid population in the state of Arizona, and they actually took a small apartment complex They figured out the people that were costing them over $25,000 a month in expenses because as a homeless person, you can go to the ED, but you can't be turned away due to different laws that are there to say you have to be stabilized. So I know when I was a hospital administrator, I saw a lot of homeless people come in and they knew how to work the system. When we would see them and they would ask for a sandwich or, you know, can can I sleep in the waiting room, that kind of thing. And so we, we took care of that population. Well, now that these insurance companies are paying attention to it, they're like, this guy's costing me a lot of money. So they set up this apartment complex and went after the people that were over $25,000 a month and said, hey, we're going to give you a place to live. We've got a nurse practitioner coming in who's going to check on you for four hours a day. Um, you know, will you comply with the program and stop going to the emergency department? We're going to set you up to get SSI benefits 
so that you can afford food and, and we're going to help you take care of your health care. Well, a lot of them jumped at it. But the homeless people who were trying really hard to stay out of the hospital didn't get any benefit from that because it was based on a, on a profit margin. So they wanted to make sure that they made enough money to bypass what they were paying in your care. So they found a way to do it and they found a way to do it creatively, you know, right or wrong. It definitely drove down the cost of health care. And uh, that's kind of a value-based care model right there and a good example of one. Well, and where it looks like they're being good Samaritans, but, you know, yeah, there's ulterior no. <laughs> motives behind it. I mean, thank God they were helping some people, right? I mean, that's that's good. But no, there were definitely financial gains in that for them. So you say it's important to note that Americans spend 18 percent of the GDP on health care while only spending 60 cents per dollar on social support where other industrialized nations spend about 8.6% of their GDP on healthcare and $2 per every healthcare dollar on social support. Yep, and so because of that, we have the worst healthcare outcomes out of the 11 most industrialized nations, even though we're spending so much more. The, the model's not working, fee-for-service doesn't work. You show up, it's cha-ching, it's time to collect some bucks because you showed up. Value-based care, you show up, you're costing them money. So it's a whole different mindset. And um, actually in this infrastructure package, there's about nine hospital systems and, and doctors who have written to key legislators who are on those committees to say, hey, during 2020, we saved $4.1 billion using value-based care models. We think we can save you another $313 million over the course of this bill. This will help you pay for the bill. It'll actually, you know, create a profit. And they want them to put in a Values Care Act that has been out there for a while that nobody's been willing to touch. Well, and I think because of all of this, because we know that it's a game and that Big Pharma is calling the shots, us as, as Americans and consumers, we're apathetic when it comes to this. We're like, yeah, we have shitty options for healthcare, mm -hmm. and everybody knows it, and we just you know, we fall victim to it because there's not anything we feel we can do. Yeah. And so you're right. So we kind of just complain about it, but we don't action it. So, you know, like I said before, politicians are getting an awful lot of money from insurance companies and their campaigns, campaign coffers and taking the fancy dinners and stuff like that so they can drive their legislation. Well, those guys work for us. I'm sorry to say they work for the people of America. And if the people of America don't start writing them and saying, hey, I, I noticed that in your campaign fund, you got X amount from Blue Cross Blue Shield and X amount from the pharmaceutical industries. And I want to know what you're doing to drive down my high drug prices, like your single mom friend there. What are you doing to drive down my EpiPen prices that are just totally out of control? You know, they all go into office saying, yeah, I'm going to drive down high prescription prices. It's a totally bipartisan issue. If they could get together and do that, that's a big win for the American people. That makes them look really good, really reelectable too, but nobody's taking it on. They just go in and say it. I mean, you know, Trump did the executive order for price transparency, but executive orders don't mean anything. I mean, he, he said, we're gonna be the most favored nation and insulin is going to have to come down to what you're paying for it in other countries. And then he said, I'm going to give you guys a couple months to figure it out. And then he held a meeting for the pharmaceutical companies. You know how many showed up, Joe? 
I have a feeling it's a goose egg. Yeah, it's a goose egg. Nobody showed up. Because how do you enforce an executive order? But if it was legislative actions across the board, then there's some accountability, right? And so we can't seem to get our leaders to listen to that and to actually do something with our health care dollars so that we're not paying this much. Well, I don't know. You say the high drug prices are a bipartisan issue. Well, big pharma is filling the coffers on both sides of the aisle. I think they all feel safe not having to deal with it. Oh, yeah. And there's even a law. This is ridiculous. There's a law called Non-Interference Act. And it's for Medicare, where Medicare cannot negotiate prices. One of the biggest payers in the American healthcare system cannot go in and say to a pharmaceutical company who wants to charge them $2 for a pill of low pressure, yeah, we'll pay a dollar. You know, they can't do that because there's a law. And the guy who pushed that law forward is now working, the politician who pushed it forward, is now working for a pharmaceutical foundation making $2 million a year. So people, you know, we, we got to get active. We don't get active. We don't get results. Man, you saying that made me think about something else you wrote about negotiating your Medicare and things like that. Like, knowing that you have leverage to negotiate your pricing. How do we do that? So um, basically, the part that I wrote about was when you're self-pay. So let's say you don't have insurance and you're self-pay. You can go in, the hospital is going to charge you mega dollars for your procedure, much more than the insurance companies are paying because the insurance company has enough clout to go in and say, hey, I got 800 people having this procedure, or maybe 8,000. So I want a certain price. And so they negotiate it down. You come in as the odd man out, they're going to charge you a lot more money. So what you can do is you can negotiate the price down with the hospital to say, you know, I did some research, bluebook.com, and I found out that this procedure costs X amount in our area, and you're charging me like double that. So I want to talk to somebody I can negotiate the price down with. So you can be an active part of your healthcare in that arena. And again, the other things are like getting it done at an ambulatory surgery center, using good RX apps when you're faced with high price prescription costs. This is like, this is something that people just don't consider. The dangerous thing about the American healthcare system is people don't get educated on it until they're actively in it. And once they are actively in it, that's too late, man. You got to know what you're doing before you go in there. Yeah. And I don't spend any time at the doctor, but I am watching my aging parents spend a hell of a lot more time at the doctor. Oh, yeah. So, you know, I forwarded a picture of this book cover to my whole family. I'm like, everybody needs to get a copy of this because we have a game plan for, you know, how we're going to budget our lives, our, we have a game plan about our careers, our families. We need to have a game plan about our health care. Yep. And you make a good point about budgeting your lives. So the majority of people save and save and save. And towards the end of their life, they spend all that savings in the healthcare system, getting drugs, getting procedures, taking care of themselves. And, and that's a shame because, you know, that money could be going to their children. It could be going other places to help other people out. But boy, I'll tell you what, the profit margins in the insurance company and in big farm, it's, it's crazy. And we're making 20 to 25%. In fact, the insurance companies during that pandemic, because people weren't going in and getting care, 
So prior to Obamacare, insurance companies had to spend 60 to 65% of your dollar on your actual health care or paying it to an insurance company. They call it a loss. That's what they call it, okay? With Obamacare, they have to spend 85%, 80 if they're a smaller organization. And so if they don't spend it, they have to give it back to you. So initially during the pandemic, they were not paying a lot for people who went in with COVID-related issues. And then they saw mid-pandemic this was going to continue, and they realized they're going to have to write some really big checks. Then they stepped up to start paying the COVID costs. So there's that kind of stuff that goes on in the background. And people, you know, they don't question it. What are you going to do? They've got mega lawyers, and, you know, how are you going to crack that nut? And I say it's educate yourself. Get yourself educated. So one of the transitions, you know, you talking about COVID and people not going into hospitals um, is telehealth. So what are you seeing with telehealth that is important for us to know or pick up on? Sure. So telehealth was really heavily regulated prior to COVID before we got in trouble. So if you were going to be seen with telehealth, you had to be seen by a provider within the state. Um, There were all kinds of hoops you had to jump through. But what happened in New York, who was one of the epicenters of COVID, was that they couldn't keep up, right? So they rescinded that in New York and said, you know, if you're Pennsylvania, if you're Virginia, you know, see our normal patients so we can take care of these COVID patients. So the the demand for that changed all of that. And now there's waivers across the country. Um, I think even Florida has a waiver. They were the last holdout. But where you can be seen by a practitioner or a doctor or a nurse practitioner in another state and, and be prescribed. And they also pay them what they would normally pay them if you went to the office. So that was a changement in the pay structure that incentivized everybody and everybody wanted to stay home. But that's a game changer, right? So as when we um, talk to you about medical marijuana, okay, medical marijuana is heavily regulated by states and federally it's illegal. So if you if you buy it in a state like Colorado where it's legal and you want to transport to another state and you want to fly, forget it. I mean, they can search your bag and they can arrest you for it, even though, you know, you have a card and all of that. So that's something that probably needs to change. I mean, we saw a change in telehealth, but it took a crisis to do it. Well, and telehealth has been used within the medical cannabis community for a really long time. And, you know, that's how a lot of people get their medical recommendations or someone living in a non-legal state that is looking for um, insight from a cannabis doctor or nurse practitioner. So, you know, telehealth has been an important part of the cannabis industry for a long time. I'm curious as far as talking to doctors in non-legal states. So people that maybe utilize cannabis for wellness, but then they go into their doctor's office. They want to be honest about what they're doing, but they're nervous. Like, am I getting put on some weird list or is there a chart or is this going to come back to bite me in the butt with insurance? So do you have any behind the scenes insight into what it's like for us to actually have an open dialogue with our doctor about cannabis? Sure. So to answer your insurance question for with my research, no insurance companies cover medical marijuana at all. That was as of a couple of years ago, but Let's go back to that question about the doctor. So 
our mindset here, and it's changing a little bit, is, you know, doctor knows best. He went to school for years and years and got highly educated, and we should listen to his opinion, right? But we know our bodies best. So when I go to my local mechanic who's been educated and he says, hey, you need a new new radiator, and I look at it and I don't see anything wrong with it, I'm like, no, forget it. You know, I'm not getting a new radiator, right? So with a doctor, the doctor works for you. So if you you should definitely tell your doctor everything you're doing. And if he has some judgy issue with you using cannabis, then you should call him on it and say, hey, you've been educated on it. Do you know the benefits of it? Like when I did some research, there's several states that won't allow you to own a firearm if you have a medical marijuana card. But you can get a fifth of vodka and you can drink that down and shoot off your pistol in the backyard. That doesn't make sense to me. Like I worked in the emergency department and when I was a hospital administrator, I spent a lot of time down there. The people who came in who were rowdy that we had to sedate and, you know, sometimes even put into restraints were drunk people that just went crazy. I never saw somebody using marijuana that went crazy in the ED. The other piece about it I think people need to know is this whole opioid epidemic, that was designed by Purdue Pharmacy, and they benefited from it greatly, and people were dying left and right. They actually went to a bankruptcy court just recently and, and made a settlement that they were going to pay some money over 10 years, but it's nothing like what the case should have been settled for. And the people who owned it are transitioning the ownership, but they also got like immunity for it. So talk about shady deals. But anyway, opioids are highly addictive. They've killed people time and time again with addiction issues, whereas marijuana Nobody overdoses on marijuana. And like I said, you don't see people in the ER that are out of their minds on it. But the real problem is the pharmaceutical industries don't want it all deregulated because people will start to look at alternative therapies. That's why they're very protective about it. And they want to make sure that you guys are going to have to pay if, you, if you're going to have it, like not own a firearm. You know, that's crazy. Well, and when you have a plant medicine solution that you right. can grow in your own garden and you don't need the pills or big pharma, then they have a problem with that. Now, oh, of yeah. course, they're off in the lab right now, you know, creating synthetic molecules and reconfiguring it, tearing it apart and building it back together like, you know, robo cannabis. And once they've got all of those ducks in a row, then things will be legalized. But then we're going to have the two camps. We're going to have natural cannabis, and then we'll have synthetic cannabis. And then yeah. that's a whole other educational dynamic to go through. Yeah. And uh, I'll use a personal example. So I recently had some back pain and uh, I could have loaded up on anti-inflammatories and painkillers and all that kind of stuff for the back pain. I simply went to see a chiropractor, which works for some people, some people doesn't. Um, and I had two bad days and all of a sudden I was feeling better because alternative therapies really do work. And for the pharmaceutical companies don't want you to know about that. The insurance companies aren't going to pay for that, right? I mean, they pay something for chiropractic care, but they're paying absolutely nothing for medical marijuana, even though there's studies showing that it can treat PTSD in veterans. And we all thank veterans for their service, but, you know, they're still not going to pay for it. Well, and, you know, there are some cannabis brands and, and companies 
that are now funding their own research with veterans around PTSD so that they can help change the laws with the VA. And, you know, our veterans are really going to be the group that helps us turn that corner, I believe, because, you know, everybody appreciates who they are and what they've done. And we need to support our veterans. So they're good to sound the alarms on all this stuff. Yeah, definitely. And if you're out there, thank you for your service, because, I mean, laying your life on the line, you know, to keep our freedoms intact, we appreciate you. And so we we need to do more. We need to do more around marijuana to help with PTSD. If studies are showing that it helps, instead of loading them down with antidepressants and drugs that the pharmaceutical companies are making a lot of money with. Yeah. And along with that, I had a a question in my head and then you said that and I kind of turned a corner. (laughs) Um, But what I want to know is when I'm talking to my doctor and, you know, the nurse are on that little computer and they're not looking at you, they're just typing in, filling in boxes. Oh, yeah. Is there some sort of code for cannabis or, you know, if I told them I'm microdosing psilocybin every evening before I go to bed, like, is there something that gets alerted? You know, do they call that illicit drugs? How does that get marked in my file? That's going to be kind of subjective according to the provider. Like, I don't know of any medical codes around that. There probably are some around medical marijuana, but I don't know of any that call out illicit drugs but that would be put in the note but the thing is you have the right to see what's being written about you in the medical record and you also have the right and and do it in writing to say to the doctor i don't agree with this he has to address it whether he addresses it in your favor or not he's still got to make a note in the chart to say the patient doesn't agree with with my assessment in this situation or my recording of this and then you can take it up the chain to your state attorney general um, and if you're still having problems and that's not a bad thing to do because if you're having a problem, there's probably a lot of other people having a problem. They're doing the same thing. And that's covered in the book too. Okay. So now I want to get to the hopeful part of our message of moving from this current fee-for-service system to the value-based care. You mention in the book some companies who are already moving to a place where they're not working with insurance and they're doing this on their own. How does that work? Because I want CEOs, business owners to know that they actually could flip the script and do things a little bit different. Yeah, so there's there's two different things. Um, I work for a company that is self-insured because they could drive down costs and a very visionary company um, whose CEO hated insurance companies. So basically, I wear one of these Fitbit and my steps go up into the cloud and I get $2 off my insurance for every 5,000 steps that I walk. And, you know, they monitor me and I send in my vital signs in a pandemic. Usually I would be on site and they would measure my waist circumference. And so I pay less money for my insurance than somebody who isn't taking care of themselves, who might be obese and might have diabetes and um, they'll pay more for the insurance. That's a model that we need to move to. And and that's hard here in America because that's called personal accountability. You know, do I choose a burger for lunch or do I choose a salad for lunch? You know, what what am I going to do to participate in my own health care instead of just eat the things that aren't good for me and then show up and say, I don't feel good? Yeah, I, I say all the time, the micro choices we make become the macro of our lives. 
And that is an excellent example. It is. What am I going to have for lunch? Am I going to get up 30 minutes earlier and do yoga or go for that hike? And, and this model incentivizes people to take care of themselves. Yes, it does. The other thing that, that, that everybody on this podcast should know is accountable care organizations. They are the ones who administer value-based health. They get a certain amount from the payers, whoever the payer is in the situation, to manage your care. And they, again, under a value-based care type of framework, have to keep you healthy. So they're incentivized to keep you healthy. And the data that's coming in shows that this really works. They're starting to do some stuff around Medicare patients that's driving down costs. And so if you get a chance to be a part of an ACO, as opposed to being under that fee-for-service system or, you know, do it because you'll get a lot better care. It's funny, my uh, sister, she uh, and my brother-in-law, he had to have hip surgery. So he went in and he had his hip surgery and uh, they sent him home on painkillers and all that. And so he doesn't even drink alcohol. So he was taking opioids and all of a sudden he was thought he was having a heart attack they rushed him back to the emergency room and the emergency room doctor did all the tests that you would do which is very expensive um when you think somebody's having a heart attack you know ekgs and blood work for troponins and all kinds of stuff and they figured out that it was due to the opioid medication that he was taking i mean they could have given him something a lot less strong and he would have been fine but my sister tells me, she goes, oh, it's wonderful. These nurses are coming out and, and checking on him, and it's all free. And I said, well, it's not exactly free. So what happened was he was under a bundled payment or a value-based care payment that everything that happened in that episode of care with his hip was going to be covered. And if they keep you out of the emergency room, they get to keep extra profit. Well, he ended up in the emergency room, so he was red flagged right away. And uh, so the nurses came out, they checked on him, they made sure his medications were okay and, and that. But it's funny, the perspective, because she didn't, she couldn't, you know, she didn't know that. Yeah, it was a red flag, but she thought it was a red carpet. Right? <laughs> That's perfect. Totally. <laughs> it was a magic carpet ride, let's say that. <laughs> right. Okay, so, you know, this value-based care is a game changer, but it takes into consideration these social determinants um, of, you know, food insecurity or you yes. know, whether or not you have transportation or, you know, can you put food on the table? Do you have utility issues? I like how it's taken the data that they're sucking out of us anyway, taking right. it and putting it to work in a useful way. So, yeah. you know, how is that working? So let me just explain what social determinants of healthcare are. So it's really a theory that what zip code you live in is going to determine your outcome. So if you live in a certain zip code in New York City, you're going to live 10 less years than somebody who lives in another zip code. Why does that occur? Because 10 to 20% of your health care is actually medical care. But the other 20 to 40% of your health care or 60%, depending on what studies you're looking at, is actually where you live, in your environment, how you work, and that kind of stuff. So, and then the rest of it, 60 to 100%, is around your needs, like food insecurity. So, if it's cheaper for you to go to McDonald's and get a Big Mac and fries and all that kind of stuff than it is for you to eat an organic salad, you're probably going to do that in some zip codes if you don't have a lot of money. That won't help you. So, 
when hospitals are starting to figure this out and they're going for these value-based care models, they're starting to set up fresh subsidized food markets in areas and zip codes in which the people aren't eating correctly. There's also, you know, is there violence in the home? Can you get transportation to your appointments? A good example of that was in, in 2020, when we went underwent the pandemic, we actually, our life expectancy went down for the first time since World War II from 78.7 years to 77.7 years. But it went down for, it went down eight months for white Americans. It went down 1.9 years for Hispanic Americans, and it went down 2.8 years for black Americans. So, you know, getting equity within our healthcare system and addressing social determinants of health will decrease the utilization of the healthcare system and drive down costs. The thing is, how do we get there? And so we're seeing some models now where these insurance companies are taking over Medicaid because the state would rather pay them, that they're starting to do charts and graphs and they can understand those zip codes and start to address the need. I know as a nurse, people didn't ask people about their home life that much because they felt they were not empowered to do something about it. Once you give them that empowerment and they can talk to social workers or community contacts and we can steer them in the right direction, then we're giving them that information. But it takes changing a culture, right? Changing a culture that's said, if you don't have money, you're not going to have good health care. Um, and, you know, addressing, like you said, the parasitic entities in the room that are just driving up the cost continually. When you were talking about the the zip code and the life expectancy and stuff, I mean, you know, food sovereignty is a huge deal right now. During the pandemic, we learned how important it is to be able to purchase food locally and to, you know, utilize your resources. And, you know, some of these people might live in a space where they have to drive 90 miles to get organic groceries. And, you know, chemical agriculture is killing people as fast as big pharma. Oh, yeah. Yep. So, you know, that, that's a whole other conversation. But, yeah. you know, I, it really is about people just standing up and being sovereign beings and making their own decisions. Yeah. And, you know, you bring up a, a good point. So if people don't know this, you should be looking for non-GMO foods because GMO foods have been modified chemically. Uh, Russia won't even allow them. I mean, they're illegal in Russia. Uh, so, you know, it's bad stuff. And the FDA isn't always looking out for our best interest when it comes to the food that we're consuming. They're saying that this will create more food so we will have less hungry people. But nobody really knows what the data is going to show on this. So if you can, eating organically is the way to go. Uh, check your labels. If you see high fructose corn syrup, in anything, then you want to stay away from it. It's in ketchup. I picked up a packet of ketchup the other day when I was staying at a hotel, and it said, second ingredient, high fructose corn syrup. And I was like, well, I'm eating my potatoes without ketchup today. So those are the kind of changes you have to make. And like I said, my book, How to Avoid Being a Victim of the American Healthcare System, will give you direction in those changes. There's a chapter in there called Being the Best You, that talks about what you should look for when you're shopping for food and what you're bringing home to your family. Yes. Amen to that. And I appreciate the work that you've put into this. It truly is a 
like you say on here, it's a handbook. It really is. You know, you talk through different steps, whether or not you're somebody who's choosing a doctor or you're going in for surgery or you're working through um, your the list of pharmaceuticals that you're taking. All of these different things are addressed in this book. So thank you so much for who you are and what you're doing. Before we end, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you think is really important to round out the dialogue? I think the one takeaway I would want everybody to walk away with is understanding that the complexities in healthcare are designed that way to keep you from being knowledgeable. I really recommend that you read the book, even if you pick it up just for chapters. Like I, I have a friend who was going to have hernia surgery and he read the chapter on what to ask the surgeon and he went in and asked the surgeon a bunch of questions and he said the surgeon was just baffled that he had that much knowledge. Arm yourselves. If it's not my book, get it somewhere else, but get yourself armed, be informed and be a partner in your health care. Yes. Amen. Knowledge is power. So tell us where we can purchase this book. You can purchase it on Amazon. If you write down the name of the title, How to Avoid Being a Victim of the American Healthcare System, or if you Google DR David Wilcox with one L, you can, you'll find me. It's got an ambulance on the cover and it's already got 23 five-star ratings. So we're, we're taking off and we're trying to get this message out to the American people. So anything you can do to share this podcast and help us get that message out, that would be awesome. Let's uh, educate those around us and let's, let's build trust in, in our medical leaders and maybe even a new system of how we address it and how we go after politicians and, and hold their feet to the fire. Absolutely. Let's put the care back in healthcare, people. Amen. Amen. I couldn't have said it any better, Joe. <laughs> I hope you're inspired to purchase David's book. And please share this podcast with your smoke circle to help spread this important message far and wide. And while you're at it, do something nice for the hardworking nurses in your life. And if you don't have any nurse friends, follow David's advice and find one. Head over to the podcast 205 show notes at casuallybaked.com for valuable links and additional details on the things we discussed on today's show. And when you're ready for a getaway, I invite you to join me in the beautiful wine and weed country of Sonoma County, California. As a cannabis lifestyle guide, I've cultivated a one-of-a-kind farm stay experience where you can enjoy the casually baked lifestyle and the magic of sun-grown cannabis farms and vineyards. Listen, if you're into wine, weed, wellness, or all of the above, get ready to have a high time customized just for you. Learn more at casuallybaked.com backslash travel. That's casuallybaked.com backslash travel. I am truly delighted to be on this journey with you, my friend, and I want to help build your can of confidence in ways that are meaningful for you. So email your requests or can of curious questions through the website at casuallybaked.com. If you prefer to DM me on social, I'm at casuallybaked on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and the Weed Tube. You got those records that spin around and round, gonna spin, spin, spin till we get home. It takes so much time and energy and effort 
to put out quality content for you week in and week out. So if you're picking up what I'm putting down, throw me a bone, man. Become a podcast patron for $5 per month at patreon.com backslash casually baked. Life is a team sport and we are in this together, my friend. Inviting smart and open dialogue about true wellness and plant medicine. So thank you for supporting me and for doing your part to Puff Puff Pass It On. Yes, is a high time. We had a high time together. Casually Baked the Podcast was created, recorded, and produced by yours truly. Editing and sound design are in the capable hands of Arnav Gupta. The podcast theme music is by my highly talented friend, Seth Walker. If you aren't familiar with Seth's music, you can find High Time on his album, Gotta Get Back, wherever you're buying your music these days. I know he didn't create High Time for me, but it sure as shit sounds like he did, right? I hope you'll tune in next time. Thanks for hanging out. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Joyce Gerber, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast, The Canna Mom Show. And we are on a mission to enhance the impact women have on this industry as business professionals, healthcare providers, policy advocates, caregivers, moms, by sharing and preserving their stories of love and kindness, wisdom, and hope. I am so grateful to have found my tribe of Canna podcasters right here on PodConX and look forward to our work of crushing the stigma around cannabis and caregivers and building this new industry together.